In this order, you see an approach from the Biden administration across a whole host of issues. I mean, nominally, it's about monopolies in the U.S. economy, but it's about so much more than mm -hmm. that. When we argue that the Biden administration is the most consequential of our lifetime, listeners are confused by that. But when you understand what they're doing behind the scenes, you begin to see how big these changes will be across the economy. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So one of the most frustrating things in my life recently, Goalie, has been how few people appreciate how consequential the Biden administration has been on economic policy. It's just driving me crazy. Although, to be fair, it's getting better and better and better as the days go by and as more people begin to recognize the size and nature of the legislative achievements. But what even fewer people appreciate is what's going on sort of behind the scenes in terms of executive orders around competition, because that is just as breathtaking, frankly, as the legislation. Yeah. You know, you know what I think I, I compare this to, Nick, is that uh, uh, I'll do a sports analogy for you that everybody pays attention to the first round draft picks. And so they get a lot of acclaim for the stuff they do. Yeah. Um, because it's expected of them. But the late round draft picks or the un undrafted free agents who come in into a league, uh, it takes years for people to realize the contributions they're making and for them to get full credit for uh, how good they really are uh, when they succeed. And I'd say that in terms of presidents, like when he was elected, you might have considered... Uh, Biden more like a fourth or fifth round pick instead of a first round pick. He wasn't the most exciting candidate. No, nope. everybody. We were all so familiar with him. And so their expectations weren't that high. And so I think a lot of his accomplishments have been underappreciated because they just weren't expecting him to have that many accomplishments. Maybe, maybe. And then but you, you turn around and suddenly... Uh, he's one of the most uh, consequential presidents of my lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in July of 2021, he signed what has been called one of the most sweeping changes to domestic policy since FDR. Uh, and it was a set of executive orders designed to increase competition and to decrease corporate consolidation in the American economy. And friend of the pod, David Dan, who's the executive editor at the American Prospect, has written this fantastic defining piece detailing uh, these executive orders. And, uh, you know, we we're just so uh, lucky to have David on to sort of take us through, you know, some of what's coming and why it's coming and what the origin story of all this stuff is. And also why why it's so important just just that they're making the effort. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're doing this podcast on the day of the State of the Union address 
that speech will be given in a, just a few hours from when we're recording. But the number one talking point in all of the material that has been published on the upcoming State of the Union is the middle out economics transformation. And you can't build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out if the economy is dominated by five giant companies. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? Markets work best when they are most competitive, when, when you have the most diverse, able competitors. They generate the most innovation and they are uh, the most dynamic and they're the sort of structures in which workers are treated fairly and consumers are well-served and so on and so forth. And, you know, neoliberalism took us way, 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 way away from that. And this is really the first time in 40 years, really, that we're turning back towards managing markets in a more intelligent way. So it's, it's very exciting. And it'll be super fun to talk to David about what he thinks. My name is David Dan. I'm the executive editor of The American Prospect. We publish every day at prospect.org. So today, David, we're incredibly excited to talk to you about the recent piece that you wrote uh, in The Prospect on competition and power in America. And, you know, the, the piece was really, I think, extraordinary because it captured a lot of incredibly complicated and arcane things that are happening in the background um, due to uh, Biden administration policy and, you know, the executive orders. And so it, why don't you just try to set the stage for our listeners about what the context is and why they did what they're doing? Sure. So I think this really goes back about five or six years, or maybe even further. Uh, since the 1980s, uh, the Robert Bork style of thinking about competition in the economy has really prevailed. And the Justice Department, the Federal Trade Commission, they were both really inert agencies in the face of rising corporate consolidation, which we've seen in sector after sector after sector. Yeah, it was basically neoliberalism, right? That's basically correct. the bigger, yeah. you know, the operating theory was effectively the bigger the big got, the better off everyone would be. Right. All that mattered was consumer prices. And as long as you could show that your monopoly was going to be efficient, then we'll, we'll go forward with it. Whatever uh, that means. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, hilariously, Bork said that all mergers are efficient. So it was a completely circular yeah. set of mm -hmm. reasoning uh, that he put forward. But it did capture, uh, and I think captures the operative word, the right. the, uh, the judiciary and, yep. and the dominant antitrust agencies. So, you know, about four or five, six years ago, uh, a group of thinkers, both uh, think tanks, academics, people who work in competition policy, lawyers, attorneys, regulators, maybe at the state level, all started to think about how wrong this idea was and that we needed a new paradigm to really attack this corporate consolidation, which was causing all of these distortions in the economy, not just on price, where it actually was rising prices, but also for workers, also for democracy, also for small business and yeah. innovation and all of these other issues. 
So these thinkers really got, I think, uh, captured a bit of a zeitgeist of uh, a, a need to uh, have a more uh, aggressive stance against corporate concentration. And amazingly, a lot of them got into the government in very high positions of power in the Biden administration. There is this group sometimes called Wu, Khan and Cantor. Uh, it stands for Tim Wu. Uh, it sounds like a law firm, but it's here's who it stands for. Uh, <laughs> Tim, Tim Wu, who was the White House competition policy czar, essentially, the, the, the head of that office out of the National Economic Council. You have Khan, that's Lena Khan, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, and Jonathan Cantor, who became the head of the antitrust division at the Justice Department. Now, all three of these people were really the, the, the renegades. They were on the outside of this system, saying that this system needs to change and here are the ways that we can change it. And all of a sudden, they get thrust into the center, into the policymaking position. So what do they do? Uh, well, Tim Wu really came up with this idea of putting together an executive order. And in that executive order, putting together just dozens of policy ideas that he would encourage in a whole of government approach for every federal agency to adopt. And uh, there ended up being 72 discrete items in this executive order. It was signed in July of 2021. We're now about a year and a half out from that. And I thought it would be good to take a look and see just a sort of a progress report of, you know, are these things getting done and how are they getting done and what are the challenges? And it was really fascinating because in looking at this executive order, you really see how government works at a real micro level. And that's what was so interesting to me about this piece. Yeah. And and we're going to get into the details of what was in this executive order. But, you know, when we on this podcast or in our tweets or whatever it is, argue that the Biden administration is the most consequential of our lifetime, you know, people or listeners are confused by that. It is the detail that emerges it, it, when you understand at a detailed level what they're doing sort of behind the scenes, as it were. Uh, you begin to see how big these changes will be across the economy. It's just incredibly exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it shows in this order, which really, I mean, nominally, it's about monopolies in the U.S. economy, right? But it's about so much more than mm -hmm. that. It's about right. health care. It's about education. It's about uh, our, our national defense. It's about industrial policy. It's about you know, all, all of these different sectors and parts of our economy and, and our our life as as not just consumers solely, but as workers, as citizens, as, you know, participants in a democracy. In this order, you see just sort of a, a, a an approach from the Biden administration across a whole host of issues. But before we get into the into the details, um, mm -hmm. I just want to uh, take a moment to uh, talk about the the symbolism of this. Uh, you can think of these as uh, Tim Wu nailing his 72 theses <laughs> to the door. Um, I don't know what any of Luther's theses were, but I know that 95 theses were important. Um, how important was it just to do this regardless of the likelihood of 
success on any of these uh, 72 individual actions? Well, I think you hit on something that's very important. And uh, it was the breadth of this and the signal of this that was as important as the details themselves. Absolutely. The idea that the president of the United States was saying, we are taking this set of policies in a new direction, and I'm going to put together a competition council that's going to follow this through for the duration of my presidency, and we're going to hold meetings every few months, and I, the president, am going to show up to those meetings, and you, the heads of the various agencies, better have something to say to me uh, when I say, how are you doing on this uh, whole of government order to promote competition in the economy that is very impactful and it's fact i think it's the reason it's been successful to the degree that it has is that they they got the power of the presidency behind it in, in a way that i think a lot of other initiatives that presidents engage in they they don't take the time to build the architecture behind the directive, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. So I think it was really, really important. Yeah. You know, today, the, some of our team were briefed by the White House on uh, the upcoming State of the Union. And mm -hmm. what really came through and what's so exciting and gratifying is their claim and their insistence that the Biden economic agenda is radical and transformational. Mm. Anita Dunn basically said, most of you are too young to know this, but we are transforming how the United States of America does economic policy. And, you know, th these executive orders are absolutely central to that, effectively a reversal. It's more than a transformation. It's a, it's a, it's a reversal from mm -hmm. believing that the richer the rich get, the better off everyone else will be to believing that a thriving middle class creates economic growth. And it's just so remarkable what what has been accomplished in so little time. But I think the, the broader context is a deliberate effort to transform how we do economic policy. Uh, yeah. Let me, let me give you an ex illustrative example of that, uh, something that Tim Wu told me. And I talked to him for for several hours, frankly, for this piece. You know, he said he would go around to the various agencies and uh, talk uh, essentially not just to the political appointees, but to the bureaucrats who, who you know, are are responsible for this policy or that. And he'd ask them, you know, why why don't you try this approach? Why don't you uh, take on this particular policy? And they would say something like, well, that's a landmine, you know, uh, and, the, and the connotation is that, that that's something that. You know, industry's going to get mad at us. Somebody's going to get mad at us. The hill's going to get mad at us, and it's going to become a big political football. And we we just don't want to take that take that on. And what he what Tim said was that their idea was, let's step on all the landmines at once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's let's beautiful. Do it all. That is beautiful. That that's one way to clear the minefield. <laughs> yeah. Right, you step on them all at once. And if your your industry says, "Hey, what the heck are you doing? You know, why are you doing this?" Uh, they're complaining about it. You know, you can say, "Go talk to the White House. Get in line." You know, yeah. we're we're doing right. this all at once. And so that is that is radical. 
that Absolutely. that is different than than the approach that I think a lot of other and certainly a lot of other Democratic yeah. uh, uh, presidencies have taken. That's actual leadership. <laughs> it's just amazing. So one of the canonical examples of this transformation has been uh, the recent FTC ruling on non-competes. Talk about that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have seen an epidemic, really, of these non-competes, which started, you know, many of them started sort of among executives. We don't want to give trade secrets to one from one industry uh, within the industry from one executive to another. So uh, if you're an executive uh, with a particular business, uh, you have to wait X amount of years or you can't go to a competitor of ours because you'll, you'll take your sales uh, contacts, you'll take your business, uh, things like that. But we've seen this expand so that now about one in five Americans are covered by one of these non-compete agreements. And it's in industries where there are just there's just no rationale economically for a non-compete other than we want to suppress your wages and limit your choices. As exactly. A my The woman who cuts my hair right. was forced to sign a non-compete. Yeah, that, a perfect example. And it's we've just seen them, nuts. We've seen it in, in janitorial services. We've seen it in fast food. We've yeah. seen it in dog groomers. I, I mean, That's right. you just go down the line. and you've That's seen right. It. Jimmy so, Johns yeah. was forcing people to sign non-competes against making sandwiches or burger king had had the non-compete where you weren't allowed to go work for another burger king right yeah yeah <laughs> internally it was it was an issue and that was you know limiting the 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 wage increases you could get by uh, and also your mobility and you yeah. know maybe maybe that's more convenient for you uh so the ftc has power that they haven't really used a lot in recent years uh, and it's you, under Section 5 of the FTC Act, and they can say that something is an unfair method of competition and write a rule that rather than doing this case by case and going like this one business yeah. is engaging in this unfair method, et cetera, can write a rule that says, no, these are banned, that you you cannot engage in these non-competes anymore. And that is the rule that was proposed back in January uh, since then, they have offered public comment, and uh, you know it's really interesting to go through these public comments. They, uh, you don't see this a lot. There are over ten thousand, I believe, public comments, and the vast majority of them are from workers. I mean, most of the time you see these public comments, they're from you know industry lobbies and things like that, interest groups. These are workers who say, "This is what happened to me." when I was you know, dealt with a non-compete in my industry and how it hurt me, how it hurt my, uh, in some cases, my patients, like a lot of healthcare staff uh, is involved in this, how it hurt uh, my family and, and why you need to carry forward with this agreement. So you've seen this like grassroots real involvement yeah. uh, at, at this level and almost as important as the non-competes itself is using this section five authority and writing rules that that lay out unfair methods of competition and police them and enforce them. The FTC just hasn't been in the business of doing that in a while. And this is sort of the first salvo in how they're getting back in that business. So tell us about a couple of uh, three other initiatives within this uh, sort of executive order framework. One of the big ones in the competition order was on hearing aids. 
Uh, previously, you needed a prescription to get a hearing aid, and this allowed a cartel of hearing <laughs> aid manufacturers uh, to work uh, with audiologists and, and uh, you know, the prescription fillers to raise prices to tremendous amounts, thousands of dollars for a, for a hearing aid. And it costs uh, a like lot. what 15 bucks to make or something like that these days. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, years ago, Senator Warren and uh, actually with Chuck Grassley passed a law to put hearing aids on the over the counter market. But the Food and Drug Administration this is sort of the implementation of policy. They never wrote the rules and established the market. And one of the things in the Biden order was get off your duff and, and write these rules so that people can get cheaper hearing aids. And they did so. And now you can get a, a, a really high quality hearing aid in the hundreds of dollars rather than in the thousands of dollars. And, yeah. and that's a, that's a real savings for people. And it really helps their lives. So that's a really good example of one. There are others. I mean, one of the big ones that you're going to see uh, happen in, in the next few months is the release of what are called the merger guidelines. And uh, since 1982, those merger guidelines have largely been hands-off. Uh, they, they basically dictate when the government will step in to try to block a merger. And uh, the new merger guidelines are going to show just a tremendous sea change in how the government thinks about merger policy and who they're going to go after in the event of uh, a merger announcement. Uh, one of the big wins that the government has had, the Justice Department had this win, uh, in a challenge to the, a merger between Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House. There are five major publishers right now that would have narrowed it to four. And the way in which the Justice Department went about this case is they said, the problem is that authors would have fewer bidders for their work. In other words, workers would yes. have lower amounts of compensation if this merger went through. That is not the way that mergers are usually thought about under right. the Borkian paradigm of consumer welfare. Uh, this was about workers, and they won the case and set a really powerful precedent. And, and I think in the merger guidelines, you're going to see uh, that laid out even more explicitly. So those are a, a few examples, but there are just... I mean, this goes across so many agencies, Department of Labor, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Transportation, Department of Agriculture, all over the country and all kinds of different initiatives, many of which are being done, some of which are, are meeting resistance in the bureaucracy. But uh, I think the the overall the ship is being steered in a pretty good direction. Yeah, and and to to set the moment, uh, we're recording this on February seventh, about five hours before the president's State of the Union address, and uh, the White House has released uh, briefings on it, uh, including that he will be talking about many of these issues that you talked about in your piece uh, on promoting competition. So competition policy, it's it's not just happening behind the scenes at these agencies. It's something that President Biden is putting right out in front in his State of the Union address, which again, I think speaks to the symbolism of this moment. Yeah, I think that's part of the strategy. And, you know, I mean, Biden, in particular on non-competes, has been talking about that since uh, he gave a speech at Brookings in 2018. So he's been pretty attuned to that issue. And he likes this issue in, in terms of, of, of what it means 
for workers and what it means for consumers and what it means for the overall health of our economy and our democracy. And I think he he really sees it as an important way to advance his goals. And uh, so I'm not surprised. I mean, it's it's obviously interesting that he's using this platform of the State of the Union. Uh, but that's been how they've kind of gone about this order all along is by you know putting the president out front, uh, making sure that every agency is updating on what they're getting accomplished. It's just so awesome and amazing. So, David, just a, sort of a personal aside, are you as surprised as we are about how effective these folks have been? Well, I, I'll say it two ways. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that people like Tim Wu no, and no. Lena Khan and Jonathan Kenner are effective. I mean, they no. they are no, no, really, no, no, no. really good. But it takes somebody different to put those people in charge. Obviously, yeah. are, <laughs> are you surprised different. that Joe Biden turned out to be the most transformational president since? Well, since Ronald Reagan in the other yeah, for direction, sure. well, where for sure. where I was where I was going with that is that I, I am surprised that they were put in the position that they were put in to succeed. Yeah. And that's really a testament to the Biden administration understanding this issue, understanding where uh, the, the, the real problems in our economy have been over the last several decades and and what it would take to turn that around. So, so yes, uh, you know, these, these are really, uh, these are people who have thought deeply about this and, and had solutions ready, but the fact that they are able to implement them is, is really, you, you tip your cap to, yeah. to, to Joe Biden. Yeah. If this is what too old looks like, give me more <laughs> of it. <laughs> like, um, you know, Goldie and I often joke around that Joe Biden is so old, he missed neoliberalism. He's so old, he's new. <laughs> I mean, you know, let, let's not completely lose sight of that. He, he was sort of in the middle of some of these oh, yeah. things. For in sure. The past. For sure. But, you know, I mean, I think I think what Biden has always been is he's tried to put himself in the center of the Democratic Party, wherever that center ends up being. In the 1990s, the center of the Democratic Party was sort of in a much more neoliberal direction. Yeah. And he put himself in the center of that. Right. And now we're in a moment that is uh, where where there's more populism, more economic populism that has taken hold in in the Democratic Party. And Biden has thrust himself right into the center of that conversation. I think it's it's uh, it's it's to his credit. Yeah. So it just briefly what needs more attention? Where are they falling? Down? Where, where are these executive orders getting resistance and falling down? In your piece, you outline that it, it can't be all perfect. So there's lots yeah, of work to do, but right? there, there's definitely a lot of work to do there. Uh, I highlighted a few agencies. One is uh, the USDA uh, Department of Agriculture, which uh, has Tom Vilsack at the head, who was Biden's uh, agricultural uh, secretary as well. Um, they have been good in some places, uh, in in investments on small meat processors and things like that, they've been okay. But they're going very slow on the real anti-monopoly rules that govern uh, uh, agriculture, which are the the Packers and Stockyards Act. Right. Um, yeah. uh, those rules have not necessarily been up to snuff. And there's an interesting contrast between how they're looking at things and how the DOJ, for example, is looking at things. So 
the DOJ uh, in as a condition of a merger, yet another merger in the agriculture sector by one of the large poultry firms, essentially banned what is known as the tournament system, which is a, a system for how farmers are really mistreated by uh, agricultural processors. They're uh, pitted against one another. Uh, they grow a certain amount of uh, chickens and uh, the, the farmers, the, the processors only take the winners and they take that cut out of the losers' paychecks. They give a bonus to the winners and they take it away from the losers. And it really, it not only is uh, economically damaging, but it really, it really changes rural America. It like pits everybody against one another. Everybody's yes. your, your competitor and your enemy. And they ban that system. And yet when USDA, uh, you know, that ban is for the particular organizations uh, that were involved in that merger, right? That the, the Cargill and Sanderson Farms, USDA has the opportunity to ban the entire system, but their rule on the tournament system just added transparency so that farmers don't know they're getting screwed, but you know, there won't be much they can do about it. Um, so that's an example of where I think the various agencies need to be more aligned. Um, another good one is the transportation department. We've heard a lot about the debacle that the airlines have been foisting mm -hmm. upon America uh, with mass cancellations for uh, flights that they can't service. We're seeing uh, some interesting possible turnarounds in that. Uh, Lena Khan's chief of staff, former chief of staff, Jen Howard, actually just went to the transportation department to run competition policy. Uh, so we might see better outcomes there. And they just announced a, a, an investigation in the Southwest where they said they would look at cancellations of flights that obviously couldn't be staffed as an unfair competition practice. Yeah. Um, so we might see some better outcomes there. But so far, DOT has been a little bit weak uh, in how they've been handling this situation. And uh, there are some others, but th yeah. those are a couple of the big ones. Uh, obviously, the, the, these agencies need to effectively relearn yeah. how to do this, right? Like these and, agencies, and it's, yeah. It, it's also, you know, there are political appointees and there are uh, there's the bureaucracy. And sometimes the bureaucracy feels like they're the government, like they're they're the ones right. that have been doing this. And they're, they they get a little resistant to change. They get a little set in their ways. And even if it's the president who is, at, is saying, this is my directive, this is what I want you to do, they say things like, well, that would be a real departure for, for us. I don't know if we can we can uh, move forward on that. So so there's you know, that's what was so fascinating about digging into this was just seeing how, how to affect agencies, how to persuade agencies to do things, even though it's a presidential directive. Yeah. You know, I wanted to, to stop on that point for a moment because you in your piece, you liken changing a bureaucracy to uh, turning a battleship around, which is a very slow, you know, there's a lot of mass there. It's a very yeah. slow and difficult uh, process. It can take a long time. It takes a lot of people working together and willing to work together on it. But the flip side to that is once you turn that battleship around, it's hard to turn it back in the other direction. So, you know, it, the bureaucracy works two ways. Once we get that bureaucracy turned in the direction we want, uh, it's going to keep moving in that direction uh, long after the uh, Biden is out of the White House. And, and here's what's so interesting about that is that you're starting to see 
agencies that weren't mentioned in the executive order come up with pro-competition solutions oh, I love it. on policy. I'll give you a perfect <laughs> example It's because it's so interesting to me. Uh, you wouldn't think of the U.S. Forest Service as an anti-monopoly uh, organization, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. But mm -hmm. for uh, decades, they manned something called the Qualified Product List. And uh, what that is, is it guides what you know, federal, state, local government agencies can purchase uh, when, uh, particularly in this case, uh, suppression of wildfires. So things like fire retardant. And for 22 years... There was only one company on that qualified product list. There was only one product that uh, state, federal, local government agencies were allowed to buy. And uh, it's a company called Perimeter Solutions, and they had a 100% monopoly on fire retardant, that, that gooey red material that's thrown onto wildfires from airplanes. Just this year, or just actually a couple months ago in December, the U.S. Forest Service changed their QPL, their qualified product list, to add a competitor named Fortress, uh, which is the first new entry into this market and potential competitor to Perimeter in 22 years. It, it's, it's unbelievable. It's it really is unbelievable. And, and and you know the the USDA when I asked them about this, they almost were like. Oh yeah, we also did that. Like it was, it was not even like their main thrust. It, it's just as an aside, we also stopped a monopoly that's been operating it with impunity for 22 years. You know, so really fascinating that you're starting to see this outside of the agencies that were targeted in the executive order. And so I'm, I'm wondering, what is the the opposition's pushback to all this that that somehow competition is bad for the economy? <laughs> What's the anti-competitive well, line? It's different in different in different industries. Sometimes, you know, like if you're talking about the banking sector, they'll say, "Well, you're ruining access to credit uh, for uh, all these people." Or you're, you know, in the tech sector, they say, "Well, you know, competition is just a click away. We we have many many competitors, and there's mm -hmm. no reason to to harm consumers who get this product for free." Of course, not saying that they are the product, right? right. In many cases. Uh, so it changes. And, and what we certainly know is that power isn't going to concede uh, without a fight. I mean, uh, these things are going to be taken on. Uh, I would I would not be surprised at all if you see the non-compete order go to court and potentially the Supreme Court sure. uh, over over the FTC's authorities in that area. Um, you're you're going to see a lot of pushback, uh, both from uh, the business sector and their allies in Congress. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that they're doing this and moving on all of these different fronts, I think, helps uh, cement that this is sort of a position that the government is going to take in a direction they're going to move in. And, uh, you know, you can you can fight it and you're even going to win sometimes. Uh, but industry isn't going to stop this direction from happening. That's right. And the beautiful thing about this is that the politics is fantastic because. Yeah industry is going to st try to stop this stuff, but it is unambiguously true that these things benefit ordinary Americans and they're going to get pissed if, absolutely, you know, uh, their representatives are not on the right side of this stuff eventually. Right. And this is, right. you know, this is what the democratic party should stand for and let the Republican party stand against it. 
I love that fight. Right. In in tonight's I love that uh, fight. <laughs> in tonight's State of the Union address, uh President Biden is going to brag about saving people three thousand dollars per person on hearing aids. And I want to see the Republicans sit sit on their hands on yeah, that one. Right. On that right. Who's gonna be the person that says the hearing aid companies need more money? Yeah. <laughs> to take from right. the American people for for inferior products. Right. That's that's going to be the stand that I take. Yeah, the politics are are excellent, and uh, you know, uh, to the extent that that Biden can make the public aware of this fight, I think is only going to be to his benefit. Absolutely. Well, one final question, David. Why do you do this work? <laughs> uh, I mean, as a journalist, it's fascinating to to really unlock. How Washington really works, how 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 policy gets made, and uh, that was you know one thing that was so fascinating about this story. As a citizen, uh, I, I think the idea that there's this this real change in government that needs to be broadcast is something that I I feel is is super important to me, and uh, I I feel like more people need to know about it, and so sometimes. You know, uh, I like to say that I don't I don't want to write. I have to. And uh, I, oh, I have to tell these stories <laughs> and, and get them out there. And uh, so that's what I do. I, I don't want to write either. But Nick makes me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, thank you for, for being with us. We're going to put your article, A Pitched Battle on Corporate Power, in the show notes it's long and it's complicated, but it really does give a sense for, um, you know, just what's going on and why it's so consequential. Well, thank you for having me. That, that was a fantastic interview. There's just, you know, we could have talked to David for two hours about all the stuff that's going on. But I think what I really loved uh, from his piece that I think really sums up that sort of middle out approach that the Biden administration is taking is this quote, which is competition policy is how we ensure that our economy isn't about people working for capitalism. It's about capitalism working for people. And I right. think that is just so much at the heart of what we're trying to accomplish. And to be clear, that's a quote from President Biden. That's yes. the president of the United States. Yeah. And I think in this and this brings me to my main takeaway uh, from this conversation. And it's it's not a new one. We, we, we've talked about it a little. It's that the Reagan revolution is over. It is. Yeah. It's so clear that we are going through now something similar to what we went through in the early mid 1980s. This transformation of how people think about the economy and the government and the government's role in the economy. Absolutely. And Nick, and the fact that it's, think about this, it's so weird that somehow being pro-competition is considered a lefty, a, yeah. a progressive. Right. Right, right. You know, the Republicans you know, have always pitched themselves as the party of business. And I mean, always since like yeah. the 1860s and they've been the pro business party, but they are the anti-competition party. And That's the right. Democrats are finally becoming the pro competition party again, 
And somehow in a market system, there's people making the argument that competition is bad. Yeah. You shouldn't no, interfere no, no. with the markets uh, when the market wants to block competition. Absolutely. Just, it's so weird to me. It's such a yeah. bizarre uh, uh, place you found yourself. I mean, in. you know, one of the biggest tricks in trickle down economics is conflating what's good for capitalism generally versus what's good for a few capitalists <laughs> narrowly. And, you know, the Republican Party is solidly on the side of their biggest donors. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which and those donors and by the way, the Chamber of Commerce are not advocating for markets. They're advocating for the bonuses and profits of the people right. who own the largest companies. And that has almost nothing to do with how well the economy does. I mean, this has been the basic problem is, the, is conflating these two things, is believing that the more money the rich make, the better off the economy will be. It just nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, don't get me wrong. Profits are an essential part of markets, but it's not the point. And rising profits uh, don't generate broad economic growth. They make rich people richer. That's it. And I think one one of the other things that, that I find very exciting about this, that battleship we're turning around is not just the bureaucracy. It is the whole dominant economic narrative, the, yes. the frame with, with within which we view the world. And when you start to turn it around, a lot of the arguments on our side are, they're not revolutionary, they're not radical, they're obvious. Yes. And and one of the examples is the the law and economics movement, the the Borkian argument that on antitrust, on mergers and competition, all that matters is consumer welfare. Does it raise prices or lower prices? And regardless of whether they're honest about whether a merger will raise prices or lower prices, that is all the courts and all the regulatory agencies have looked at up until now for the past 40 years. What will be the impact on consumers? Well, you know what? And, and this is part of what the new narrative says. You know, these consumers, they're workers too, Yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, if you have a merger that, that oh, no, it's not going to raise prices, consumer prices, but it lowers wages, that, hey, that's bad for consumers. <laughs> or narrows choice or decreases right. innovation or any, you know, any of the other bad things that happen when you when you allow for effectively unbridled corporate concentration. And these aren't difficult arguments to make. These aren't yeah. things that are above the heads of voters. Well, anyway, uh, we're going to put uh, David's article in the show notes. We urge our listeners to read it. It's absolutely fascinating and will give you a, a much bigger and broader perspective on what's going on in the economy. Really, really fantastic. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.